Hello, welcome to Midweek Mom Talk with Dr. Jackie on 360 Talk Radio for Women. I'm Dr. Jackie, owner and founder of Motion Spot LLC, providing occupational, physical, and speech therapies for women, children, and families. I know back to school things are in everyone's face right now. This time of year, it's pretty much every ad and commercial is either back to school or Halloween related. And I know not everyone can relate to the back to school topic. So I don't want to keep talking about it, but I have one final thing to clarify and then I promise I will move on. So what I wanted to clarify, in the previous episodes, we were talking about back to school. I gave some tips using occupational therapy techniques to ease the transition or to help you ease the transition from summertime to school time. And we also talked about how it's stressful for parents and children, but you basically just have to drop them off, let time take its course, right? Over time, they'll adjust and learn this is a safe space for them, etc. But way back when, I was talking about taking a child to a new activity. I was thinking more like a mommy and me activity. And oftentimes our first instinct as parents is that we want them to have fun. We know that they will like it if they just try it out. And so we might push them to try even if they resist. And so during that episode... I suggested that when you take a child to someplace new, such as a mommy and me activity, instead of pushing them to participate, try letting them adjust at their own pace. You can provide encouraging words, point things out, explain what's going on, maybe even try it yourself and let them see that it's not scary if they let you go, of course. But forcing them to try when they're not quite sure or ready or comfortable will increase the likelihood of tears and screams. And I do think that part of the reason that we try to make them do this fun thing is because we fear being judged or making a scene by being the only one not participating, having the only kid who's crying, everyone else is enjoying and having fun, right? It makes it seem like something is maybe wrong with us as moms, or maybe we think a label will be put on our kid that they're shy or they're slow to warm up or they're uncooperative or something along those lines, right? When in reality, every mom in the room understands and has been there. But also, by forcing them and having them refuse, we're just creating an even bigger scene, a more stressful situation. And that state of mind is less likely to encourage a child to participate. So why they don't want to participate, it could be a number of reasons, of course, but a couple of common ones are first, fear, or another one could be that it, there's overstimulation. Fear could be a fear of the unknown, the new environment and lack of familiarity, the new people, right? And taking all this novelty in can be highly stimulating, which creates the sense of overload and overwhelm and by pushing them that overload and overwhelm can increase so if you instead just give it time they will be able to adjust at their own pace become desensitized to the new environment and ultimately it will allow them to feel safe and comfortable enough to try participating and because you did not push them they will further trust you with their needs, trust you with their fears, and that will hopefully help to continue building a positive relationship between you and your child and your child's feeling safe. And again, that they can trust you with their needs, which actually makes me think about the eight stages of development. This is from Eric Erickson. If any of you took high school psychology or further psychology through college and graduate school, you will definitely have heard of this, the eight stages of development. And the first three are trust first, mistrust, which is kind of what I'm talking about right now, although it's really for younger kids. Trust versus mistrust, that's when a child learns that their needs will be met 
So they do that by, let's say they're crying because they are hungry. This is typically for like really little babies, right? If they're crying, they're hungry, or they need to be changed, or they're cold, whatever it might be. They cry for their parents. Their parent comes to them and gives them whatever it is that they need. The child will learn to trust this care person, will trust this parent, and will also then learn that the world is a safe place and that their needs will be met. Whereas if a child cries and cries and cries and their needs are not met, then they can develop mistrust. They will lack that trust in the world in the idea that their needs will become met. So that's stage one, trust versus mistrust. The next stage is autonomy versus shame and doubt. And this is also relevant to what I'm talking about right now with letting your child take it you know, on their own time to adjust. Stage two, autonomy meaning that they have that confidence that they can do something on their own versus shame and doubt. They feel like they can't do it on their own, right? So that could be if you are trying to push them and force them and it just creates this whole scene, maybe you end up saying comments you don't mean like, oh, come on, you're the only kid, you know, who can't do this or something along those lines. I've seen parents do that before. That can create that shame and doubt if they're in that second stage of of development, according to Erickson, right? Autonomy versus shame and doubt. And then the next stage that I think is also important and relevant to this discussion is stage three, initiative versus guilt. So in this stage, the child is learning that they can decide for themselves right? Can I do this? Is it okay for me to do this? And, you know, decide now is the time for me to go do this versus guilt, feeling like, okay, I actually can't do this. So when we are, again, when we're pushing the child to do something and they are not quite ready to do it, they might not develop that initiative they might instead form that feeling of guilt. And these are just the stages of Erickson's theory. It's not like, a, you know, you don't have to... It's not the rule of law, is what I'm trying to say. It's a theory. But I do think that there is some truth in this theory. And these first three stages, I feel, are more applicable to a mommy and me type of program. Or really to any type of activity where you are still there. You, the pre- the parent, you, the mom, are present. It's not a drop-off situation like going to school for the first time is a dropping-off situation. And that is when, according to Erickson, the next stage will become important here, which is industry versus inferiority. And in this stage... That is when a, a child basically enters society for the first time without their parent being present. They become more of an independent social being. And so in this stage, children who are encouraged and supported in their efforts develop that sense of industry while those who maybe aren't encouraged or supported the way that they need might develop a sense of inferiority. And this is where trusting your gut that you sent your child to the best possible school for them, that's when this becomes important. Because if they are in their environment that is ideal for themselves, for for their learning, for their growing, they should then develop that sense of industry. And when we drop off, our child to school, we can support them and encourage that they, you know, they were, they did such a great job or they had a, you know, they had a great day. Tell me about your day. Oh, that's so cool. Right. When you have these conversations at pickup or um, when you're dropping them off and you ask them, you know, oh, what are you excited to do today? Who do you want to play with today? Having these conversations is supportive. So why am I talking about these two things? Why is there a clarification that I want to make? 
Because it seems a little bit contradictory for some people to think like, okay, well, on the one hand, you're saying that, you know, I shouldn't push my child to do something they don't want to do. I shouldn't force them to do it. I should let them do it on their own. But in the other situation, you're essentially forcing them to do it because you're dropping them off and running, right? You're leaving them there even when they're upset. So the difference here is, first of all, when you are dropping your child off for school, it's possible that you are sending them to school because you have to right maybe it maybe they are younger and it is a daycare situation but you are working or having other you know things going on and you need them to be in daycare you need them to be cared for by somebody else or perhaps they are older in which case they have to go to school because that's that's the law of the land children need to be in school at a certain age between I think it might be either three or four, maybe it's five, something like that, until they are, you know, a legal adult, they need to be in school. So there really is not such a choice of, okay, they don't want to go today. Okay, that's okay. You know, we can keep them home. So when you are dropping them off, it's important then to be consistent and maintain that encouragement, maintain support, but in a in a different way than you would for a program or an activity that you are staying with them. When you're staying with them, you are their support, you are their safety, but you are not leaving. So they're always going to have you as their support system. They don't necessarily need to create, you know, a sense of safety and security on their own in those situations because you are there. So because you're there, right, they're going to cling more to you, to their safety. But if you let them develop the safety on their own of, okay, this environment is safe too. Yes, my mom is here. And, you know, if I need anything, she will be there, but I don't need to stay attached to her, right? You letting them do that on their own, letting them explore things on their own will just help them to further adjust to new situations, especially if the time comes when you do have to drop them off, right? Let's say you are you have a younger child right now, you're going to mommy and me, you encourage them to, um, you know, to adjust on their own time at their own pace, you're not forcing them, they develop that sense of trust and autonomy and initiative, and they are well adjusted in society just in general you're more likely to have a smoother adjustment to school once that time comes because they have developed that sense of trust in you. They know that you will come back, you will pick them up, and you have dropped them off right now at a place temporarily, but at a place that is still safe and where they can you know, enjoy themselves and have fun, but also be safe. So those are a couple of differences with the two situations. It's not comparing apples and apples. It's comparing more like apples and oranges, right? In the one situation, it's maybe an optional thing. A mommy and me is typically an optional situation, whereas a schooling is really non-optional. And the other difference is that in the one situation, you remain there with your child versus you are not allowed to be there with them. So you have different advice different tips for different situations so again they are not the same and that's why i just wanted to clarify that because in the one situation again you are staying with your child so you're able to give them that time to adjust on their own at their own pace whereas in the other situation they're not going to be comfortable right away but you have to leave them but it's even still time is what will help them to adjust they will take their time they will do it at their own pace you just won't be there to see all of the progress and see the steps happen but over time they will learn the same thing that this place is safe and so on of course of course trust your gut you know if god forbid something is wrong you will hopefully sense it or they can tell you depending on you know their age But again, assuming that this is, you know, a good place and everything is going well, over time they will adjust and they will learn this place is fun. So that's actually a similarity between the two. Time will 
help the situation. Time, gaining familiarity, gaining understanding that the place is fun and safe in both situations is how the child will ultimately adjust. Not by you pushing them or forcing them, not by, you know, you dropping them off and running away and just hoping for the best, right? It's because of time. Time is what will help them adjust. All right, that was the last thing I wanted to discuss as far as back to school goes, because I think it might start to get annoying to constantly hear about back to school. But also, again, I know that not all of you are in a place where back to school is relevant. If you did want to look up the eight stages of development, regardless of how old your children are, it might be something that is helpful. You could just, you know, type into your search engine, Ericsson, E-R-I-K-S-O-N, Ericsson, and the first thing that probably will come up is Ericsson stage of development, or you can just type that in right away. There are eight stages, and they basically go from birth, you know, throughout development, and um, that, you know, the completion of one stage will go into the next is kind of how that works. So successfully completing the first stage will lead into the start of the second stage and so on. Why am I even bringing this psychology into today's episode? Because I do think that a theory such as this one is very important in understanding kind of how the world works or in understanding ourselves perhaps why we have certain tendencies because this is a psychosocial theory so it focuses not only on our brain right on on our psyche on psychology but also on social participation socialization the importance of socializing things of that nature and this theory also goes from birth through development it does not stop at early childhood like a lot of developmental theories do it also just it doesn't stop at you know 18 it doesn't stop at childhood it goes through life so really anybody of any age can look at this theory find the stage that they are at based on their age and kind of see like okay you know what might be going on during this stage of my life and then also backtrack to the previous stages and think about how you ended each stage where did you fall did you create trust or mistrust obviously you might you know you're not going to remember what you did when you were 15 months old but you can think like okay you know am i very mistrusting do i lack a lot of trust why is that oh because of these you know social situations that happened or the opposite why do i trust people so much why do i have that innate trust oh because you know i had a great environment growing up i had that community where i knew and trusted people that my needs would be met that if i needed help somebody would help me right so looking through those stages i think can be important just in general not just for you know thinking about our children and where they they might be developmentally but also for ourselves as we continue to grow and change i know i talk a lot about early childhood development on this show and on my social media pages and tends to be my area of focus in my career when i do take on clients if they are children i will personally work more likely anyway with the younger kids especially since i work with moms when they're pregnant and postpartum that kind of ends up you know flowing into their early childhood development plus my kids are on the younger side they are in their early development i have a two and a half year old and a two month old so that does tend to be where my brain goes but obviously kids grow up so if you have older children kids in their preteen or teenage years then you might want to look into stage five of eric erickson's psychosocial stages of development and that stage is called identity versus role confusion and when you think about teenagers that's exactly what you would think teenagers are having kind of this identity crisis who are they where do they fit in what's their style like what kind of people are they surrounding themselves with 
maybe they are kind of exploring with different social groups and trying to really see you know where they fit in perhaps they end up falling in with quote unquote the wrong crowd right people who are you know cool but maybe aren't so nice things like that so in that adolescent time they really are going through this period of you know who am i they are trying to find their identity and discover their role in society in their friend groups in their family so if you have an older child if you have a teenager or almost teenager preteen i would recommend looking into this um i can't speak more on teenagers since i don't have them personally yet and i do prefer to give advice not just on things that i have you know educational background in so like yes i can work with teenagers but i really prefer to speak on things that i have personal experience with as well which is again why i tend to focus on early childhood and pregnancy postpartum because i have that hands-on experience so i like to be able to really provide my clients with both lenses not just professional but also the personal i think that's what makes for the best outcome for my clients but also just helps me to build a relationship with my client because i can truly empathize with them i can put myself in their shoes since i am a mom as well with a child you know either the same age as their kid or a little bit older or you know i've gone through the pregnancy i've gone through the postpartum so i know what they might be feeling and i know not only what works based on you know the books but also what worked for me personally so again can't speak on advice for those with teenagers but just something interesting would be that stage in the psychosocial development from eric erickson he does have an area that focuses on adolescence I actually was not at all planning to talk about that, so I'm a little surprised about where it went, but usually, just so you all know my process, I tend to kind of think of a topic, a subject, maybe something that is going on, like, you know, the back-to-school thing, or something that maybe I just went through, or just something in general that I think would be helpful, and, you know, brainstorm some ideas to plan for my show, and then kind of just see where it goes. But this was definitely not where I was expecting things to go. I haven't personally thought about Erickson's stages in a while, but it just, you know, naturally kind of came up. But that kind of takes me into my next thought here with planning as a mom. How much can you really plan? I personally am a huge planner. I love when I have my list of what I'm doing for the day or the week as, you know, if you've been listening for a while, you know. I have my planner. I buy it every year at the start of the new year. I buy a new planner so I can type. I mean, by type, I mean handwrite. I handwrite. I handwrite everything that I have to do, any appointments that we have coming up. I put all that in there. I don't have it on my phone, which a lot of people think is weird given our times, but I just love to be able to write it down and then mark it off. But yesterday, someone was asking me, how is it leaving with two kids? She is an expecting mom. Her son is in my son's class. And she asked me, you know, because she's ready to give birth, I think within the month. And I guess that's what she's worried about because she sees me picking up and dropping off my son while also having my daughter in tow. So, you know, I, I told her how our morning goes. But then afterwards, I was kind of thinking about it. And, you know, the hardest part for me isn't so much that you know, the two of them might cry at the same time or might need something at the same time when I'm by myself. But the biggest difficulty, I would say, is the unknown with how the morning might go because toddlers are unpredictable, but newborns are just as unpredictable. They don't, you know, run around and make messes the way that a toddler might or an older child might, but they're brand new They don't have so much consistency. They don't have such a routine or a schedule in the beginning. And I breastfeed, so I feed her on demand, which makes the schedule even less known. So I really can't plan how the day will go. I can't anticipate how the morning will play out. And that's definitely the hardest part because if she needs to eat at the same time that I'm trying to change my son, that's when 
things kind of, you know, go a bit haywire, that's when I have both kids needing me, crying for something potentially at the same time, and that's when the stress comes in. Whereas if my daughter did have more of a set schedule where I know, okay, she eats, you know, at this time every morning, let's say it's 6 a.m., then I would know, okay, I can feed her at 6 a.m., and then I can have my coffee at 7, and then I can get my son at 8, right? But that's just not how our morning goes. So every morning ends up being completely different. Also, my toddler sleep schedule, sometimes he wakes up 7 a.m., sometimes 7.30, sometimes 8, depending, I guess, on what we did the night before or how tired he is. So the morning really is unpredictable. And if I could go back in time and tell her that, that's what I would say, that the most difficult thing for getting two kids ready and out the door is the lack of predictability and the lack of true routine. Our only routine is that at some point we're all dressed and we leave the house. That's really the only consistency in our morning. That also, though, flows into how I get work done during the day, during the week, when I'm with my daughter by myself and my husband is working. It really doesn't matter if he works from home or from the office. I am primary parent to our newborn, mostly because I'm the one feeding her, but also just because I don't have a set schedule where I need to be in front of a computer or be in a meeting on most days. So I'm with her, and what I've come to learn lately right before I would write down okay these are the things that I have to do or these are the things that I want to do but what's helping me a new layer that I want to share with you all what's helping my mindset is not only writing down those things and trying to make some sort of a plan but also mentally noting that it's very possible that I will not get anything done today. And that is okay too. So basically, if I lower my expectations on what I might get done, it definitely lowers my stress as well because I'm not expecting to get three things done and only get one thing done, right? I'm expecting to get zero things done and end up getting one or two things done. So that definitely feels much, much better. Again, a little bit potentially contradictory because I was saying that, you know, what helps me is to write things down and to pick just a couple of small tasks maybe to get done through the day or one larger task. And now I'm kind of saying like, okay, you can write that all down, but expect to not get anything done. And that's just what's working for me right now at this stage in motherhood, at this era, as is the popular thing to say. So right now I have my toddler and my newborn, who's still a newborn, but entering the no longer brand new phase. So again, with that lack of consistency, it is just way too difficult to truly plan for much of anything. I can't say I'm going to get these five things done because she might be going through a growth spurt that week and cluster feeding and needs to be with me more. Or maybe she decides she only wants to do contact naps one day and then I really can't do certain things. Like I can get some work done when I contact nap her, but I don't have two free hands. So I can't expect to get a lot done. And I also can't expect to get everything done. I can't, you know, cook or clean or fold laundry when I'm contact napping her. I can read some things. I can maybe get an email sent out very slowly with one hand. I can maybe type something with one hand, you know, maybe social media stuff, but it's a slow process. And as long as I don't have the expectation of, you know, I have to get these things done, I have been able to decrease my stress because lately I haven't had two free hands. Lately she has been contact napping. And now when she has maybe a couple of hours that she sleeps without being on me, it's almost like a surprise. Like, okay, wow, okay, I don't know how much time I'm going to have. So what, what can I do now? What should I do now? So I do, that's why I have things written down. I do have a list of what I would like to do if the time allows, if the baby allows for it. So that's what's been helping. Less of these are the things I need to do and more of these are the things that I want to do 
if it's possible so that the time really is not wasted when she is sleeping i'm not you know struggling to figure out what to do as you might know if you've listened to previous episodes i've said it before i'm saying it again what is the hardest for me isn't the doing of something it is the thinking of what to do right it's not the act of cooking a meal that's hard for me it's the thought of what do i make when I have to think about it, that's what takes time away. It's not the getting clothes out of the dresser or out of the closet for the next day. It's the thought of what am I going to wear? So for these situations, when I do have time, when she's sleeping or if my husband does have her for a bit or my mom or I have someone else helping me, right? It's not of, okay, I have this time now. What do I do with it so that I'm productive? It's okay. I have a list of things that I wanted to get done today or this week or thing, you know, so this is what I'm going to look at in order to not waste any of that time. Speaking of what's the hardest part, that actually flows really nicely into what I was thinking to talk about today, which is the four trimesters of pregnancy. Which one is the hardest? A lot of people think it's the third, some people say it's the fourth, maybe it's the first. I think we can pretty much all agree it's not the second trimester, but let's break them all down and see what's going on in each trimester. So in the first trimester, you are likely not yet showing. What's difficult about that? Maybe you feel like you have to keep it a secret. A lot of people do wait until at least 12 weeks not everyone does but some people do or maybe you don't want certain people to know or maybe you are really really excited and you want to tell everybody but you're not showing yet so that might be kind of like a mind game for you you might also have a lot of exhaustion and nausea which is not easy to deal with even if you are a first-time parent having that extra nausea and fatigue is really difficult if you are working inside or outside of the house it's for sure not an easy thing to manage when you are so extremely fatigued and like people don't understand it people can't understand how you could possibly be so tired you're not showing yet your body probably isn't so uncomfortable right so how is it possible that you're so tired even women who are older and just haven't experienced pregnancy for a while they don't really remember i guess the true exhaustion so it's not easy and if you are a second time mom especially if you're working as well and have all these extra responsibilities it's for sure a very difficult trimester now in the second trimester you likely are starting to show And perhaps you're starting to get a bit uncomfortable, but your energy is supposed to be back. You're not supposed to have as much fatigue. And allegedly, you're not supposed to have as much nausea. That is, you know, different person to person. I for sure felt better fatigue-wise in the second trimester, both pregnancies. That's when I was my most active. That's when I was able to work out and be productive around the house. I had a lot of motivation. I felt very productive, but I did still have a lot of nausea in the morning and in the evening. So that was not easy, but it was definitely not more difficult than the first trimester. And then we go into our third trimester. As far as the pregnancy itself goes, this might be more difficult in a lot of ways than the first, but in other ways it's, you know, not you are large and in charge at this point so moving around can become difficult you might not be able to put on your own shoes or socks and you might still have some nausea but you might also now have some back pain things of that nature at this point even maternity clothes that you bought in the first trimester might not fit the way that they should by third trimester so you're definitely uncomfortable at this point but what i think might be the hardest part of the third trimester is not so much the physical discomfort because there are things that you can do to ease those up if you don't know how to do that or if you need help to ease up the physical pain hit me up let me know i'm happy to help You can call or text our business line, 908-333-8888.
or you can send me an email, drjackie at motionspotllc.com, or you can send me a message on Instagram. The handle is motionspotllc. So anyway, more so than the physical is the emotional of that third trimester, the anticipation of the baby coming, the am I ready? Is everything ready? Is the house ready? Do I have enough clothes? Is my hospital bag ready? What do I need to bring? Do we have enough diapers? What if we run out of diapers? What can the hospital give us? Does the hospital provide this? Does the hospital provide that? What if I tear? What if I need a C-section? What if I can't get the baby to latch if i'm trying to breastfeed what if i decide to use formula what if i'm judged regardless of the choice that i make right there are so many unknowns plus the when is the baby coming for me this second pregnancy my daughter was about a week late and my son was two weeks early so about a month before my due date everyone was like oh my gosh the baby's gonna be here in a couple of weeks which is true it was you know not so many weeks away but we were all thinking a couple of weeks because of my son's timeline and as my son's you know time came like that due date in perspective like in relative to the due date his time that he came I don't know how else to say that when that time came up in this pregnancy everyone was like oh my gosh she can come any minute and then she still didn't come and then the days went by and then it became where is she and I got constant messages is she here? Where's the baby? Did you have her? What is she waiting for? Blah, blah, blah. And it was awful. The anticipation of when is she going to come, the constant questions from everybody. I felt like a circus show. I felt like, you know, just some like freak show that people were pointing at and talking to or talking about and laughing with or laughing at. And it was really not fun at all i think that was by far the hardest part of that third trimester and then it just like the, all of the other anticipation of you know are we ready what else do we need what's my son gonna do blah 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 all of those things just were prolonged even further i will add just as a side note if you hear any baby breathings or cooings in true midweek mom talk fashion which relates perfectly to what we were talking about a little bit earlier my daughter has decided to contact nap so i am recording this with a baby on my shoulder and on one arm so i can do this show with one arm right i can get this done but i hope that she doesn't disturb the audio too much but anyway third trimester physically uncomfortable mentally emotionally might even be worse for some people that was definitely the case for me. I would say both times around, different types of emotion each time, but especially being late, like that was not so fun. And people say like, oh, okay, next time, just don't tell anyone your due date. Say like, oh, I'm due around this time. I'm due around the end of June. I'm due in early May, you know, whatever it is. I think that's a great idea in theory, but I personally don't know anyone in my life who would actually respect that as an answer. Like, nobody close. Anyone else who, like, you might tell that to and they'll be fine with it. Or probably not anyone who's, like, particularly important in the life where, like, you're going to call them the second that the baby is born. Like, there's no way my parents or my siblings would accept, oh, yeah, I'm due, you know, at some at some point, you know, sometime in February. Right? They're never going to accept that. They're always going to want to know when is the due date. And I think that will be just annoying to have that constant question. And I don't know, it's, I, don't, I was going to say it seems a little weird to me to not tell them, but I know some people do prefer that. So I guess it's just, you know, kind of becomes the norm for everyone to know when a woman is due. But why is that the norm? I'm not sure. Perhaps it is a bit of an invasive question. But then again, with my son, we didn't tell anyone his name, including my family, and the entire pregnancy, they were extremely annoying about it. And, um, you know, they definitely did not let up. But the second time around, they seemed to learn their lesson, and they didn't even bother asking what we were going to name our daughter. So maybe for, if there's a number three, maybe I will not tell them a due date, and then by number four, they'll respect that I'm not telling a due date. I don't know. 
And then we have the fourth trimester, the famous fourth trimester. For anyone who maybe has not heard of it, the fourth trimester is after you deliver the baby. It's those next few months. And it's really referring to that early postpartum period where you've just had your baby, you're now recovering from pregnancy while also dealing with a newborn. And for a lot of people, this fourth trimester is the hardest because now your body is recovering, not just from the delivery, whether that be vaginal or C-section, there is definitely a recovery process. But your body is also recovering from being pregnant for the past 9 to 10 months or however long your pregnancy was. So you are completely changing. Everything is, you know, just everywhere. Your hormones are up and down and left and right. You're possibly in pain, possibly uncomfortable, and they throw a newborn at you. So it's not like you're able to just sit and relax and recover. You now also have to take care of another human while you try to recover. You have to not just take care of another human, but basically your whole life is flipped on its head. Even if you've had kids before, you know, this baby comes, it's still changing a lot of different things. You're still having to take care of another person and basically you and your baby are now getting used to one another, kind of recovering together, growing together, and it's definitely a lot. I mean, what do they say is needed or is very important for recovery in general? Sleep, right? Sleep, hydration, and hydration, while it shouldn't be, it is very hard to remember when you're doing all these other things, but sleep in those first few weeks or even months for some people even longer than a few months, is very difficult to come by because newborns need to eat every couple of hours all day long. And then after that stage is done, I think typically they say it's once they reach their back up to their birth weight, I think most pediatricians will say you don't have to wake them up. You can just let them wake up. Even then, they will wake up, you know, maybe every three to four hours. So it's not every two, but it's every three to four or lately what my daughter has been doing, she'll give me one or one four or five hour stretch at night. And then after that, maybe she's up every two hours. Maybe it's every hour. Maybe she's just up for the rest of the night. It's very unpredictable. Like we were saying before, unpredictable in this stage. But also the sleep is not is not great. And so recovery kind of is prolonged. It's not just a week or two that you're recovering, but your body is recovering from labor delivery from pregnancy for weeks or months and I'm not trying to scare anyone or deter anyone or you know anything like that but that's just the reality it's not a flip of a switch type of a recovery just because you're taking care of another human and I think sometimes people forget that because it seems like we have it all together when we're taking care of somebody else but we have our own needs too and that can definitely be hard I think overall this time around I would say that the third trimester was the hardest for me because of that emotional aspect of when is she coming when is she coming and everyone asking me questions and then just the those thoughts and the fears I guess of the unknown of how will this work out how will that work out what if people want to hold her what if they don't respect me what if you know my son misses me when I'm in the hospital all of those thoughts made the third trimester not so enjoyable Whereas with my son, I would say the fourth trimester was probably the hardest. It was a huge change going from zero kids to one. He was, I guess you would say colicky. Um, He (laughs) had a lot of reflux. And just in general, then like the hormonal shift. And you can, you know, work with moms. You can read all the books. You can watch all the TikToks and Instagram reels. But until you're doing it yourself like you really don't know what it's like to be a mom you don't know what that's like so that huge change was a big not just you know physical change my body but my my mentally was a huge change as well hormonally I didn't know what to expect I think was the biggest thing I thought I knew but I really did not know 
the first couple of days I think were great, but then after like the adrenaline wore off, that's when it got very difficult for sure. The recovery process both times was not easy. I now it's been a while, but I know with my son it was hard to sit down for a bit, so that recovery was difficult. So now I'm just talking about the physical recoveries. Um the with my daughter physically sitting down was really not such a problem, but all my other body parts hurt so that was very hard but because emotionally i was better mentally i was better i was excited to have her finally come right i was excited to introduce her to my son this time i actually wanted to come home from the hospital with my son i was worried to come home and have all these changes i guess kind of hit me in the face i didn't know if we were ready plus it was the winter it was cold and dark with my daughter i wanted to come back and you know kind of start our family with my son i wanted to stay in the hospital and have people continue to help and take care of us so i will say though physically recovery takes longer than six weeks maybe it takes six weeks for like a stitch to heal or for tearing or c-section scars or whatever to like technically heal but as far as your body as a whole goes six weeks is usually not enough time you definitely don't start to really feel like yourself again until maybe the start of like week eight and then things start to feel a bit better right now i'm about 10 weeks postpartum and while i definitely feel a lot better than i was week two i can't say that i am like back to my normal self like i'm just starting to feel like a human again and every time that I start to feel a little bit better, you know, then something new happens or my daughter goes through, you know, a change of her own and then I have to kind of adjust myself. I think for me right now, the biggest change would be her sleeping. So I am extremely tired, which doesn't help the situation since, again, we are breastfeeding as well. Her change in schedule also affects my supply when it comes in, when my milk drops and that can be painful that might mean i have to pump more um not more milk i mean you know pump more often throughout the day or pump at night which for a while i didn't have to do at all and that was kind of great i personally don't like pumping it's just not for me it takes up time whatever it's not important why it's not for me but it's not my favorite thing i'd rather her just eat from the source but anyway because of her change you know i'm not able to kind of feel as well as I did maybe a few days ago because my body is now adjusting to something new and once it's adjusted then you know I'll be good again for a few days and then probably her schedule will change again and then I'll have to adjust myself again and that's kind of the game for at least the first three months is what I'm told and that makes perfect sense because that is the fourth trimester. So I am still in the fourth trimester. Again, emotionally, mentally, I'm good. I'm doing great. So it feels better even if my body doesn't feel great. I am definitely enjoying this fourth trimester better than I did the fourth time around. So that's just me. First pregnancy, third trimester was not as difficult i guess as the fourth trimester second time around opposite where the third trimester was much harder than the fourth but again it seems for me to be more of an emotional thing than a physical thing perhaps because of my occupation i am able to kind of ease my body aches and once i've recovered postpartum physically you know i know what stretches to do with things like that again always happy to help you Otherwise, my pregnancies were different. I had morning sickness, all-day sickness at different stages in the pregnancy, but overall, I would say first and second trimesters were pretty much the same for me. Again, that's just me, and this show is not about me, but really about you, even though I'm the one talking. Um, it's really for what I hope are beneficial purposes for you, so I want to know what was the hardest trimester for you? What was the easiest? Was it different between kids? Was it consistent for you? Let me know. For this, you can send me a message on Instagram at motionspotllc. 
I'm trying not to whisper while also trying not to wake up my daughter. She is now fully just laying on me, sleeping, which is good. For anyone wondering, she stirred a little bit. And because I told you that she's contact napping, right? So she's contact napping, doing great. And then I started to talk and she started stirring. And I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? I'm, you know, in the middle of a show. I have her right now on my chest, kind of like sitting up-ish. And I'm leaning back a little bit. But I have my hand near her booty and I'm just rocking her ever so slightly, kind of giving her booty a little jiggle. And that seemed to help soothe her, help get her comfortable and into a deeper sleep so that I'm able to talk pretty much right next to her without actually waking her up. So if you have a child who is also in this age, she just sighed. (laughs) I guess she knows that I'm talking about her, even though she's in a deep sleep. So anyway, just a quick piece of advice if you're not sure exactly how to get your child to sleep sometimes what works for my kids is to do these little movements instead of the big rocking ones or the big big you know jumps or whatever just having these little little movements especially in like the hip area just little soft movements helps to lull them into a deep sleep again that's what works right now maybe something that you can try as well but don't come for me if it does not work. I am not a sleep expert. That is not my training or area of expertise, but I definitely wish it was because my son has been a horrid sleeper pretty much forever. Now he's older, so it's different, but as a newborn, he was really not good. As a toddler, he got better. My daughter is better than him, but Some people, you know, in those mom blogs are saying, oh, my kid's already sleeping through the night. Is that normal? And that's when you give the eye roll of, well, lucky you, you know, you should just enjoy that. My kid is not sleeping that long. So that's kind of where we're at. So, okay, not a sleep expert. I think you guys got got the picture. What I am an expert in, though, is overall development, lifespan development, and, um, orthopedics. I love working with women and children in early child development, women from pregnancy through postpartum, through all four trimesters and beyond, and into the child's early development. I work in person and do telehealth consults and follow-up sessions as well. So even if you're local, we can do a telehealth Um, By local, I am in the central New Jersey area. If you're not local and you have some questions or think you might want to work together, see if we're a good fit to work together for me to help you out, send me an email. You can email Dr. Jackie at motionspotllc.com. That's D-R-J-A-C-K-I-E at M O T. I-O-N-S-P-O-T dot com. Motion Spot LLC is my business. That's the name of my private practice with its daughter company, Motion Spot Pediatrics. That is the part of our business that focuses exclusively on school-aged children. I'm Dr. Jackie. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Midweek Mom Talk on 360 Talk Radio for Women, and please tune in for the next episode, wishing you all a great start to the new school year. Bye-bye for now.